This episode of World Changing Ideas is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. This is World Changing Ideas, and I'm Amelia Hemphill. This season, we're on a mission to bring you the dreamers, the experts, and the activists who all have one important thing in common, a desire to change the world for the better. So if you like solutions and you're sick of depressing headlines, then you've come to the right place. Okay, let's get into it. When it comes to fixing the world's problems, Anything that helps us to move away from polluting fossil fuels is presumably a great idea. I feel like I've heard so much hype over the years about solar power. The sun is our ultimate power source, right? It's clean energy, emissions-free, relatively cheap. You can use it on an industrial scale or just for one single household. But I don't think I actually know anyone who's using solar power in their day-to-day life. Why are we not all getting on board with this? What's the catch here? More homeowners now going solar to save money. In 2021, the residential solar market grew 30%. Tonight, Chief Investigative Reporter Lauren Schrager brings you a warning as local consumers say they got burned by solar power companies over-promising and then under-delivering. In our Eye on Earth series, we can share a bit of good news in the battle against climate change. Cleaner, renewable sources of energy, such as wind and solar, are generating more power in the U.S. than coal. Okay, I get how solar works. Sun shines down, panels capture the energy, and a lithium battery stores it. But how easy is it to get one installed? On your house, maybe. How much does this all cost? And... How many of us would need to get one to actually change the world? (laughs) I need some answers. Luckily, one of our New York reporters was up for this solar-powered quest and ready to source some answers for us. Hey, Blake, how's it going? Pretty good. Okay, so why don't you fill us in on what your journey's been like? So my interest in solar panels came in when my father was having a conversation with my brother about you know, I'm tired of paying for Con Edison and everything. If I got solar panels, why do I have to pay Con Edison when the sun is providing me energy? So it sparked the idea in my mind to go through with it and figure out, you know, why do we have to pay for solar panels? If Con Edison or public utilities, why pay them when we, you know, we're getting the energy from the sun? As I've said before to you, uh, Amelia, I don't own a home, but I do live in one. So I want to see how I could figure out going through with that. And I had to see if my folks would be open to the idea. So, Mom, what is your concern with installing solar panels on our roof? Well, first of all, my concern is how do they go up on the roof? Are they using nails, screws? How are they maintaining their weight and what keeps them up there? How far does it go down into the roof? How deep is the screw or the nail that they're using to keep the panels up there? Is there going to be damage down the road? Will it take, who knows, 5, 10, 15 years? You may have some leakage in your roof. Will your panels start to come off? These are the things that I'm concerned about. Dad, I know you have your concerns, so what are yours? My concern is, from what I've been told, if you're going to switch to solar power for your home, I 
would presume it's because you want to get out from underneath the public utilities. But it seems like the public utilities still have their hand in this whole process. Mm-hmm. So then I'm like, well, then why am I going through this if I'm trying to get out from underneath public utilities uh, clutches? You know, uh, Con Ed is our public utility yeah, for electricity. Why is it that I'm still going to have to deal with them? I shouldn't be dealing with anybody. I should just be receiving the electricity straight from the sun into the cells and into my home for the use that I need. So I looked into a company named Sunrun from a recommendation of a friend of mine who has solar panels from Sunrun. I went and I spoke to their customer service. I spoke to a person named Donnit. She was pretty helpful, but most of the conversation was a bit... That's a great question for sure. That's a great question. Okay, that's a really great question. Great question. Great question. And you can call our solar advisory number. Well, well, that's a great, great, great question. Repetitive. So I took her advice and called the solar advisory line. They got me in contact with an expert named Thomas. First, I wanted to know how much the electricity bill would be only using solar panels. He told me it would depend on how much we're paying right now with Con Edison. And that's based on how much energy we consume throughout the whole year. And he compared it to our phone usage. So if you wake up in the morning and you only make important phone calls, important texts, your energy consumption on your phone is not going to be a whole lot. But if you wake up first thing in the morning, you start FaceTiming your parents, all your friends, you're playing Angry Birds and Candy Crush all day. That's when the usage starts to go way up. He said that it required a much larger energy system to be able to generate all of that consumption. So if we choose this option, Sunrun will want to see the last 12 months of my family's energy bill to get a sense of how much our usage was. Then the installation process begins. Typically, we see the smallest crew possible, two people, but we can have 10 people up on your roof at one time, and that makes the install go a lot faster, more manpower. Then they send some quotes based on some preliminary designs. That's when I, or in this case, my family, since they're the homeowners, right? If they decide to go with those numbers, Sunrun sets up a site survey. That takes a few things into consideration your electrical panel, if it's up to date or not, your electric wiring, the condition of your roof. And after all that's been qualified, they'll give me the final numbers and we'll come together, look over a final design. And at that point, do you have the decision to go solar with Sunrun or not? The actual installation takes about 10 days, but we aren't even running on solar yet. Thomas explained that the next steps take a while because city permits take some time. And I don't know if you've worked with the city for permits beforehand, but they like to take their time. Once they give us the green light, that's when we can actually talk to Con Edison, say, hey, are we all good to light up the, the solar panels? Once they give us the green light, that's power on, and that's whenever the system actually starts to generate energy. So basically, they install the panels on your roof. Then they ask for the city for permission. Once the city gives the permission, that's when they turn on the solar panels. So that's when... I get solar energy. So were you able to find out why you still have to pay your electricity company, even if you have solar energy? Yes. Donnett, the customer service representative from earlier, explained that the sun doesn't run all day, obviously. So at night or on a cloudy slash rainy day, maybe snowy, during the winter, your utility company is supposed to kick in. 
and provide the energy if the solar panels can't. Even shade from nearby trees can affect how much solar energy the house receives. But then Thomas told me that my family's house, the house I lived and grew up in, is at a 105% usage offset. So that means you're actually producing 5% more energy than what you consume. That means that in those winter months where you produce a lot less than you consume, don't worry about it. That's when your solar credit bank will kick into play. So while most homes get reduced the amount of solar energy during the winter months, my house receives so much sunlight, we could actually produce more solar power than we could consume. And the great thing is, we wouldn't need to pay Con Edison. Oh, wow, that's interesting. Yeah, he told me if my family was to pick a monthly lease option of 0%, the electricity bill would be $287 per month the entire time we are leasing the solar panels with Sunrise. And how long can you lease their solar panels for? With that option, about 25 years. Could you just buy the solar panels? And how much does that cost to get them installed? You know, it's weird. I got conflicting messages. Recently, I had a brief call with another Sunrun expert. Her name was Shermie. She told me installation is free up front when you lease. She made sure to say that up front. I was so confused because Thomas never said that. He told me that he couldn't do an estimate of my house unless he had boots on the ground there to see the roof. But the lowest he has seen is about 15000 and the highest he's seen is about 100000 Yeah, so those are really mixed messages. And that is a lot of money to get them installed. Yeah, I wish that there was a more straightforward way with that question. And maybe it's because neither of them had seen my house to give me a firm answer. But I asked that question multiple times. And to get two different answers is wild to me. Yeah, that's pretty confusing. Since Thomas gave me the actual numbers, let's go with his option. It's crazy because I'm contemplating in my head, man, I hope that it is 15,000. And that's still a crazy amount. That's still pricey in itself. Also, Thomas told me that the 200 from that 287 electricity bill is from that installation cost, and they would be paying that for 25 years, they meaning my parents. But wait, it gets worse, Amelia. Shermie told me that if you want to buy those panels after installation costs, you have to pay thousands of dollars up front. Right. And does Sunrun still maintain those panels after you buy them? What if they break? Nope. You are on your own unless you want to contract Sunrun to check your systems. I'm no solar engineer. I personally don't know any solar engineers. Now, Amelia, if you do know some, please let me know. If you lease the solar panels, then Sunrun covers most of the damages, monitors the system, maintains it. The only damage they don't cover is falling trees or electrical poles. Okay, not ideal. How many solar panels are you going to need and how big are they? I kind of share your mum's concerns on this. They don't look that nice. Depends how big the roof is, how much you need to power the home. Do you actually know anyone who's gotten solar panels on their roof who could give you some advice maybe? I do. My friend Nina, her mother was influenced to get solar panels after a conversation with some of her friends. And a lot of them, they're older, were talking about paying bills after retirement. And one of them was just raving about having solar. You know, her light bill's so low. Um, You do have to invest a lot in the beginning. But my mom, I think, was swayed by that. What did you have to invest in the beginning? 
So she had to um, get a roof consultation. They come in and assess the quality or the nature of your roof. Um, and if it needs repairing, then you have to get that repaired before the installation so it doesn't compromise, I'm assuming, the efficiency of the solar panels. Mm -hmm. And how much did that cost for that? I believe everything in total was about 15000 Um mm. We needed a roof repair. Um, I'm not sure how much that cost separate, but we did use their contractor. So I do think that they have, you know, they get extra money in that. If yeah, you need yeah. a roof repair, it's extra incentive for them. So I'm not sure what it costs individually, but I think total is about 15000 Okay. Do you remember what the electricity bill was before you guys were on solar? So normally, normal weather, maybe about 180 um, normal usage of like a normal family, but uh, in the summer, even more with air conditioning, about mm -hmm. 240, 250. And how did that change once you got solar energy panels? It dropped a lot. The normal light bill is about 18 to $25 monthly. Mm -hmm. And in the summer months, the highest, I think it's about 65, 70 bucks max. So 65, 75 max. Max. I haven't seen it go higher than that. Wow. And how long have you had solar for? Six or seven years now. Uh, some some time money saved yeah do you think that it was worth it i think it depends yeah for us it was worth it um i know that we were able to pay off everything um in one lump sum but i know that that's not everybody's situation and we haven't made the difference back in you know seven years almost 10 years time so it is a, an investment and if having the funds to start that is a struggle then maybe it's not something people think of as worth it right initially um, do you take out a loan? Then how much are you paying? But you're paying more back in the loan than you're getting back. So I think it's worth it, but it's a big startup cost. Okay, cool. So that seems to have worked out for Nina. And with energy prices going up right now, you would have thought that more people would be looking for alternatives. Do you think you've got enough information to talk to your family about it now? Well, there's only one way to find out. Great. Let's leave this on a cliffhanger. And we'll be back with Blake in a bit. This episode of World Changing Ideas is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. Although solar installations in the US are on the rise, the global leader is actually China, which has the largest solar market in the world. But what about countries that don't have a stable, centralized power infrastructure? Is this where solar is really going to provide impactful solutions? In Sierra Leone, on the west coast of Africa, only 23% of the population has access to electricity. That's according to the World Bank. In rural areas, that number drops to just 5%. I haven't been to a single community to say, hey, I'd like to bring electricity. And they're like, ah, I need to think about that. That's not what they say. That's Nicole Poindexter. She's the CEO of Energicity. It's a company she founded to help power rural communities in West Africa with solar energy and initially worked in several different specialties, including government and book publishing, before she pivoted to the energy sector. So um, got a job with a company. It was successful. It went public. And um, about four years later, I had enough money to have some flexibility, not enough to be rich, definitely not enough to consider not working. And in that time, I said, what do I really want to do? And it was first this question of how do you get 100% solar on the grid? At 
the time, Poindexter felt that the US wasn't really set up for this kind of undertaking. So she looked to the African continent. I actually looked at some YouTube videos and saw what people's lives were like without electricity. And, you know, these are people living in pre-industrial circumstances in our world where we've got Times Square, I've got Starbucks and my latte and no plug next to me. And I'm like, what? It's a crisis. So she got on a plane, met with some regulators in Ghana initially, and now Energicity has expanded to four other West African countries. Most countries recognize that there's a real need for private sector companies to play a role in energy provision. That's how we got started in these countries. And I went to some rural villages, asked them would they like electricity. I thought they'd say, go away, crazy lady. But what they said is, can you come back again tomorrow? (laughs) And I was like, hmm, going to take longer than tomorrow, but I will try. Energicity acts just like your regular utility company, but... What is different about us is that we're... 100% solar, that we serve small communities that are rural and not connected to a larger grid. The company then provides 24-hour electricity using solar-powered batteries that are monitored by a smart meter. The meters are prepaid, so customers will pay in advance. They'll put a balance on their account of, let's say, the equivalent of $5, and then use the electricity against that until their balance goes to zero. They then get a text message or an SMS when their power's running low and can top up using their phone. Power outages can happen sometimes. In Liberia, for example, it can be cloudy for at least five months straight, which obviously is an issue when you're dependent on solar power. And there are other issues to think about, too. Communities can migrate because the land doesn't support them in the same way that they do. And if we've just built a mini grid there, you know, we're operating on a 20 year horizon and that's a long time. When it comes to climate disasters, though, solar energy is being touted as a resilient option. As well as producing much lower carbon emissions, it's estimated that a typical home solar system can save one ton of carbon every year. Not surprisingly, our customers aren't big contributors to climate change before we provide them with electricity. They live in rural villages. They don't have electricity. They are poor, so they don't have cars. Like, they are not the cause of this problem. But really, if you believe in justice, if you believe that these people should not remain as poor as they are, and particularly on a relative basis, if they were to become or have access to middle-class conventions, they would have to consume a huge amount of carbon. So in cases like this, solar energy can provide a totally new mini-grid energy infrastructure for people without having this huge impact on the planet. At the same time, though, it's only a very small piece of the climate solutions puzzle. The things that I'm concerned about are really how climate change will impact our customers. Our solutions are pretty resilient, but our customers are subsistence farmers who are some of the people who will be most impacted by climate change in the world. If there's a drought, they don't have irrigation, though we can possibly help them provide it. If there's a shift in the types of produce that can be grown, they go hungry. If there's extinction of animals, they are very much impacted by this climate crisis. The public and the private sector can have a complicated relationship when it comes to providing utilities, as we can see right now with the impending energy crisis going on around the world. What I wondered after talking to Poindexter was, could this mini-grid, pay-as-you-go solar energy model be replicated here in the US? Interestingly, there is actually a town in Florida that's trying to do that. So we took a quick trip down to the Sunshine State and checked it out. 
Everybody is welcome. Everybody is welcome. It's a hometown. Uh, we have 5,000 people living here. There'll be 50,000 by the time we're done. That's Sydney Kitson, former NFL player turned real estate developer and now sustainable town designer. People are going to be moving into new homes uh, all over the country. In my mind, it just wasn't being done the right way. We wanted to prove that you could build a new city that works hand in hand with the environment, not against the environment. Kitson wanted to start from scratch, self-reliant design from the ground up. In 2006, he found some land in Charlotte County, Florida, 91,000 acres of it, which he bought for $350 million. And then we sold 73,000 of those acres to the state of Florida in the largest land purchase in the history of the state. We ended up with 18,000 acres. And out of the 18,000 acres, we preserved half of that. So at the end of the day, 90% of the original ranch is in preservation forever. And that's a model that I think is very, very important because my kids and our grandkids are going to be able to enjoy this tremendous preserve forever. Kitson and his team put together a set of initiatives, kind of like a development manifesto for the town. Top of the list was respecting the environment and then providing great technology, education and transportation. The house prices range from several hundred thousand dollars all the way into the multi-millions. But the sustainable town still needed power. We looked into a, a number of different types of, of renewable energy. We were looking at everything from geothermal to wind to even a type of hydropower. But, you know, this is the sunshine state, so it really made sense to use solar energy. They partnered with a company called Florida Light and Power. And since then, according to Kitson, Babcock Ranch has been acting as a sort of living laboratory in the world of solar energy developments. And now it's, uh, we have over 800 acres of panels. And uh, just to put this in perspective, it's 700,000 panels to uh, put out this uh, 150 megawatts. And it does power the entire town. And what was great about it too, is they built an observation tower so people can actually see uh, what it looks like. So far, so good. But then in September 2022, a Category 4 hurricane struck Florida. It caused the worst damage and destruction to the state in almost 100 years. But Babcock Ranch was one of the few places that didn't lose power. It's remarkable, and, and um, the resilience of that facility is pretty amazing. And so we're hoping that these ideas really take hold that you can build a new city, a new town. You can build in any way, shape or form you want and it can work hand in hand with the environment. I know that that sounds simple, but it's so important because if we're gonna solve the many problems that we're seeing throughout the world right now, I think we're proving that you can power a town with solar energy, it can be done. So could this be the solar-powered development model of the future? There is one quite major problem, battery storage. The town still has to tap into the grid from time to time because even though their solar panels generate a large amount of power, they don't have enough battery storage. This has been a long-standing problem with solar. The batteries just don't last that long. They're expensive and you need lots of them to generate meaningful amounts of power. Well, who is trying to solve this problem? We tracked down some European scientists on a mountain in Wales who are thinking big. Our idea is to store energy in the soil, in the ground beneath our feet. And I've been thinking about this for a while. 
Michael Harbottle is a senior lecturer at Cardiff University in South Wales, where he specialises in geo-environmental engineering. His team is working on the idea of soil batteries, or storing energy in the soil. It suddenly struck us that this is a, a valuable material to use. The ground, it's really big, there's a lot of volume in there, and you've got a lot of space to store energy, pretty much where you create it and where you want to use it. How would this work? Well, the idea is to use existing bacteria already in the soil and stimulate it to produce a kind of fuel. In this case, it would be a very simple organic molecule, acetic acid, something like you get in fermented vinegar. And this process is called biosynthesis. The next part of it is to use something called a microbial fuel cell, which uses up that fuel when you want it to. So you flip the switch, the microbial fuel cell turns on and different bacteria consume that fuel and generate energy. And the idea is to store that acetate or whatever organic molecules we produce in the ground. Harbottle's team hasn't yet figured out how the energy would flow into people's homes. They're still working on the proof of concept. Storing the sun's energy in the soil is going on naturally all the time. But how could we tap into that on a much larger scale? There's organic matter in the soil anyway. So when plants and animals decay, die and decay, and their remains essentially become an organic matter in the ground. And that's fairly natural. But that's consumed by fungi and all sorts of microorganisms that are present, typically speaking. We want to do this at, a, at depth in say, sediment on the, on the seabed or deeper soils where there's not so much to break it down. The organic molecules, they'll stay in the ground until there is an opportunity for something to degrade it. And that only happens when you, you flip that switch, when you turn on that fuel cell and it starts to, it gives it an opportunity to decompose it. The hope is, and we haven't proven it yet, but the hope is that essentially until you flip that switch, there isn't anything to decay it, at least not very quickly. This method wouldn't use traditional battery casing, so the big challenge would be to keep the energy source stable until they're ready to use it. And then, compared to what we're used to, the energy released isn't that strong. Microbial fuels cells typically have pretty low energy densities compared to a lithium-ion cell, for example. So it's not going to directly compete with that at this stage. We're looking at pretty small voltages, pretty small energy levels, and, it, and pretty small currents coming out of it as well. But because of the volume you've got in the ground, we reckon you can store a an awful lot of energy in that space. And it's just working out how to actually use all of that space, or as much of that space as we can. Because in a typical lithium-ion cell, you're constrained by weight, the amount of lithium, the cost of the lithium, and so on. Whereas in the ground, we've got an awful lot more room to play with. So it's a, a bit of a different concept to a, a normal battery you could hold in your hand. Unfortunately, this type of process is still very much at the research stage, but Harbottle and his team think that in the future, this has the potential to be a world-changing idea. When we first started looking at this, I think it was such a surprise to see how simple it was to extract energy from the ground. There's plenty of stuff out there on the web where you can just get a handful of soil, put it in a bucket, and start generating energy from it really easily. It's low power, but you can power an LED light source from it for a period of time. And I think that sort of availability of energy, just because of the actions of microorganisms, I think is just really exciting. That has the potential to make it something that is fairly accessible to people. Right? You don't necessarily need a lot of high-tech knowledge, at least when it's been demonstrated properly. But I think some, some aspects of this can be done very, very simply by anybody. OK, so massive opportunities potentially lying right below our feet. But what about above our heads? Some more futuristic exploration is looking at tapping into a much bigger volume of power. 
best way to imagine it uh, really is to think of a solar farm here on, on the Earth. And imagine taking one of those large solar farms and putting them up in space. That's Sanjay Vajendran. Part of his day job is to strategize future Mars travel at the European Space Agency. But he's really interested in finding out how we can use outer space to fight climate change. So we're talking about a very, very large structure, but a highly uh, modular structure that is made up of essentially a large number of of the same parts that can be mass produced, just like solar panels are are mass produced on the Earth and assembled by hand into a large solar park. A large solar park in outer space. Is this even feasible? Something of the order of the size, perhaps, of a solar panel that we have on the roof of our houses, but having hundreds of thousands or even up to a million of such panels assembled in orbit into a single megastructure, which is then receiving the sunlight and converting it to electricity, then to microwaves and beaming it down safely to the Earth where a receiver is. It sounds very sci-fi to me. A huge satellite about two kilometers long, hovering in our atmosphere, that will capture the sun's power and then beam it down to Earth. We're talking about a minimum power level that is similar to power plants that we have on Earth. So something of the order of 100 megawatts and upwards, up to the low gigawatts, like one or two gigawatts even, which is a high amount of power, but that's typically what you get out of a, a nuclear power station. The satellite could be capable of transmitting a nuclear power station's worth of energy down to Europe. And because it's so far away from the Earth, it can be permanently in the sunshine. The sun is always shining 24-7, 365 days a year. So you're getting a constant source of green energy solar power, something that's just impossible to get on the ground because of the day-night cycle, because of seasons and weather and clouds and things like that. So it's an advanced form of solar power and it's constant. Right, so space-based solar doesn't require any kind of storage or battery on the satellite itself, and it can supposedly run 24-7. Because it's continually receiving that sunlight, converting it directly to electricity and beaming it straight down to the Earth. So there's no battery or any storage required on the satellite. And even more importantly, or just as importantly, we don't need any storage in the ground because that receiver can receive these microwave energy, convert it back to electricity and connect it straight into the grid for us to use in our homes and businesses. Is that a public safety issue, beaming microwaves down from outer space? So all of this needs to be understood much better. But like with other industries like nuclear, we fully expect that the public would have concerns about safety of microwave power beaming to these rectennas. Apparently, the levels of exposure would be the same as standing next to your contained microwave oven. But this still needs research. We plan to do that with our Solaris program to look into uh, the safety of the microwaves with living things, but also compatibility with satellites or aircraft that might pass through the beam and to figure out you know, what would be the limitations of where we can place these rectennas on the ground and how close people can live and work through them. That would all need regulatory approval too. I'm personally not feeling super confident about those microwaves. Another challenge would be designing something that can last up to 30 years in space. And how will they be able to protect it from getting damaged by space debris or asteroids or whatever else is flying around up there? So if we're in a much lower orbit where you have debris going around in 
different directions at extremely high velocities, it's, it's a much bigger problem than if you're in geostationary orbit where everything is moving in the same direction and so the relative speeds are much lower. But still, you have to consider how you're going to design your satellite to be tough enough to handle being hit by debris. So that area of how to do the whole deployment of the hardware and assembly in orbit to get it into a single megastructure and then using similar robotic systems to replace, maintain and ultimately to even decommission and perhaps recycle in space. If we think about a closed loop economy and that's something we want to move towards, that's what we're going to be thinking about uh, as well in the longer term. Later this month, Vajendran and his team are going to present the Solaris Initiative to the European Space Agency. But can they physically turn this idea into a reality? Right now, they're aiming for a commercial-scale solar power station to be built no later than 2040. Back on Earth again, let's check in with our reporter, Blake, and find out how his home solar mission is progressing. How'd it go, Blake? Well... With the information I gathered, would you say that anything that I've spoken about has convinced you to consider solar panels or yes or no? I consider it, but the reasons for not wanting to do it, one, if I'm still involved with Con Ed, that's one. Two, if I have to pay out for these, we have to pay out for these initial charges of installation and panels and leasing and rent or whatever. And by the time you're finished, you're paying more then you actually would be saving. Mm. It'd be best to just leave it the way it is. I'm sorry to say, because I I would love to get out from under the clutches of public utilities. Mom? Well, one thing I will say, that's good to know. If you did decide to go in that direction, that we would get the majority of the sun that we need to supply us with the fuel that we would need to run our home. So that part is good. Mm -hmm. But what I will say is that if you have to rent these materials that have to go up on your home and by some hook or crook, how long are you renting them for? Who's to say that your roofing is going to not give you any problems? And if you decide, God forbid, if anything was to happen to the panels, do they get replaced? That would be a part of the warranty. Okay. Also, if at any time in the future you decide, well, I don't want it anymore and they have to come and take it off because it's a rental piece, it's not yours, then how does that leave your roof? And do they guarantee that there's going to be no damage done to your home? Unless you're going to get somebody with a drone to go up there and video what's going on. But would it persuade you if like the bill were to change? Well, it would persuade me differently, but you know, based on what they're saying. But based on what I'm hearing now, I'm not in favor of them doing it. I do realize, see, and this is what gets me why I consider changing because, you know, we've been here when our bill was $60 a month, you know? When we came, when we've been here for over 40 years. I can remember when our bill was 60 something or 50 something dollars a month. You didn't pay $100. I'm talking about back in the the 80s. Mm You know, and we may have thought that was too much money, but now, you know, it's outrageous. But if you're going to add on finance charges for other things other than just electrical usage, you know, for 15, 20 years, why should we go through that? I understand everybody's got to do something for money. We live in a capitalistic system, but let's be real. Everybody can't afford that. 
So my parents weren't really into the idea. My mom was concerned about the potential damage to the roof, and my dad wasn't convinced about the overall financial benefit. Oh, no, after all that. Well, thanks for diving into all this for us, Blake. No problem, Amelia. Ultimately, it's hard to get people to switch to an entirely new energy system unless it makes good financial sense to do it. Solar does have the potential to take people totally off grid. But for now, at least in the US, the reality is that you probably end up just paying another utility company and still needing to tap into the main power grid from time to time. So will this idea be world-changing? From solar cities to solar space stations and soil batteries, innovation in this sector is definitely heating up. That's it for our show today. I'm Amelia Hemphill. We want to hear about the world-changing ideas going on where you are. How are you using solar? Are you using it at all? Let us know on Instagram or TikTok. Please leave us comments, stars, reviews on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. See you next Wednesday. Our show is produced by Avery Miles. Additional reporting by Blake Odom. Mixing and sound design by Nicholas Torres. Joshua Christensen is our supervising producer. Editorial oversight from deputy editor Kate Davis and senior VP of entertainment Scott Meebus. <laughs>